Mr. Chairman, <coughs> my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. At our last class, as our brother Peter has reminded us, we were looking at the Song of Mary and we saw how the Song of Mary is based upon the Song of Moses and the Song of Hannah. And from the sheep that was given unto you as you entered the hall tonight, you will see how nearly every verse of this song finds its parallel either in the Song of Moses and in the Song of Hannah. And so we find these two great songs of the Bible harmonised here in the Song of Mary. But having seen that relationship of Mary's song to that of Moses and to that of Hannah, tonight we want to look at this song and try to see Mary's mind as she mouths these words. First of all, I'd like to take you back once more to verse 45. In verse 45 we have the words of Elizabeth to Mary. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Blessed is she that believed, said Elizabeth to Mary. And as we saw last time, there's a great contrast here between Mary and Zacharias. There sitting in that very room, no doubt, was a man who was dumb and possibly deaf as well because he hadn't believed the words of the angel Gabriel. But not only is there a contrast between Mary and Zacharias, I believe that as we look at Mary here, and particularly as we consider the words of her song, we find there is a contrast between her and another prominent woman in the Bible. And that prominent woman is of course Eve. Eve was a, was a woman who was given a message from the angels, possibly through Adam. She was told that she was not to eat of a certain tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden. She didn't believe the angel. She became deceived by the serpent. She grasped at equality with the angels, but she fell to a state of humility. But having fallen to that state of humility, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us that Yahweh, by his grace, promised to produce from the woman a son who would be a saviour, one who would triumph over sin and be a saviour for his people. We take a look at verse 47 of Luke chapter 1 of Mary's song. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my saviour. And how was God to become her saviour? For God was to become her saviour through the promised seed of the woman, promised back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I believe that Mary would recognise that as she praises Yahweh and speaks of the way in which her spirit rejoiced in God my saviour because she recognised that that child that she was about to give birth to, or would soon give birth to, was that promised seed of the woman, was the saviour that was promised right back there in the Garden of Eden. Now in verse 48, Mary goes on, and she points out that, that God hath regarded the lowest state 
of his handmaiden. That word lowest state is a word which means humiliation. It's a word taponosis. It's used four times in the New Testament. It's used here in Luke 1.48. It's used in Acts chapter 8 and verse 33 where it's speaking of the sufferings and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of his humiliation in that sense. It's used in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 where it's translated vile where the Apostle Paul contrasts this vile body or this body of humiliation and speaks of the way it's going to be fashioned like unto the body of glory of the resurrected Christ. And so it's used in that sense of a body of humiliation and it's used in James chapter 1 and verse 10 of the rich man being made low. And so Mary says here um, in verse 48, For he hath regarded the lowest state of the humiliation of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The word blessed of course means happy. I believe there's a play on words in this verse. You see, we need to consider the one who's giving voice to these words. Her name was Mary. And Mary means bitterness. Mary means bitterness. But through that son that Mary was going to bear, she recognised that Yahweh was going to turn that bitterness into happiness. We can relate these things back to Eve. Eve was placed in the Garden of Eden. By her folly, she brought humiliation and bitterness upon herself and her posterity. But there in that state of humiliation and bitterness, Yahweh, by his grace, promised to provide a way to happiness through the seed of the woman. That child that Mary was now going to bear. Now back there in the Garden of Eden, Eve submitted to the serpent reasoning. She was deceived by the serpent. She ate of the forbidden fruit. And she submitted herself to the reasoning of the serpent. And ever since that time, the serpent has maintained dominion over the woman. Even to this very day, the serpent has dominion over the woman. And because of that, we look at the state of God's ecclesia, the true ecclesia of God as it has existed, down through the ages. The true ecclesia has always been in a state of bitterness and humiliation. That's been the lot of the true ecclesia of God throughout history. Bitterness and humiliation. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, that bitterness and humiliation is going to be turned into happiness in the future age. I believe that as Mary... um, meditated upon these things. (coughs) She saw herself, as it were, as a type of the ecclesia. And I believe that as we look at the words of this song, they're words that are applicable to the ecclesia in general. That's why I believe she says in verse 46, 
um, verse 47, my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Saviour. It's true that he will be the Saviour as Mary, as an individual. But God is the Saviour of his ecclesia through the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have the Apostle Paul speaking concerning Eve. And in verse 14 he takes us back to the Garden of Eden. He says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in the childbearing, as it should read. She, be, she shall be saved uh, through the childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. <coughs> in verse 14, he's been speaking of Eve, the woman who was deceived and in the transgression. You know, we go back to the Garden of Eden and we find that, that Eve is set before us as a type of the ecclesia. She was the bride of Adam. She was a prefiguring of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she stands there as a type of the ecclesia. And verse 15 says, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved through the childbearing, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the ecclesia of God shall be saved, every individual of it, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So I believe that as Mary contemplated that great promise back in the Garden of Eden, and she realises that she is the one that's going to produce that seed of the woman. You know, back in, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, at the birth of Cain, he said, I have gotten a man, the Yahweh. She thought that Cain was the seed of the woman. She thought that in Cain she had given birth to her Saviour and her Redeemer, and she rejoiced. But of course she was mistaken. He was a, he was a man of sin. But now Mary was in, told that she was going to bear that one. She was going to bear the, that seed of the woman who would be the saviour of all mankind. And in this beautiful song here, she sees herself as a type of the ecclesia of God because the very son that she would bear was the one who was going to redeem the whole of God's ecclesia. Now I believe that as Mary gave vent to the words of this song, now she contemplated these things she would have found great sympathy of mind with Hannah. Possibly she would have had more sympathy of mind at that time with Hannah than she would have with Moses, although she saw the significance of Moses' song of deliverance. She would have been more sympathetic to the circumstances of Hannah at that time. And I believe that there are many <coughs> points of basis for that similarity. On the sheet that we gave you, we just set forth one or two similarities between Hannah and Mary. Hannah's name means grace. And when the angel Gabriel 
came unto Mary in verse 28 of Luke chapter 1 we read and the angel came in unto her and said Hail thou that art highly favoured literally the words read much grace you notice the margin renders alternate renderings of graciously accepted or much graced and so you see in the meaning of Hannah's name and in the, uh, the address of the angel Gabriel unto Mary there is a similarity Hannah means grace Mary is addressed as one who is highly graced or much graced you see we look at the circumstances in which both those women lived both of them lived in times of great apostasy both lived in, in times of great apostasy we find that in those times of great apostasy both these women would have looked to Yahweh for help in their struggle against sin and they both praised him for their deliverance Hannah as we shall see in a moment prayed for her son in the times of that, those times of apostasy Mary would, would undoubtedly have been looking for the Messiah and praying for the coming of the Messiah and Hannah praised Yahweh <coughs> for the great deliverance that was given through the birth of Samuel Mary now praises Yahweh for the great deliverance that is to come through the Lord Jesus Christ you know Hannah looked forward for the coming of the Messiah she only saw Samuel as a foreshadowing of the Messiah that's shown by verse 10 of her song in 1st of Samuel chapter 2 she looked far beyond the days of Samuel to the coming of Yahweh's Messiah Mary gave birth to that Messiah you see Hannah gave her son to Yahweh Mary's son belonged to Yahweh anyway and so you see there's these points of similarity between Hannah and Mary and these points alone would be sufficient to take Mary's mind back to Hannah and so we take a brief look at the circumstances of Hannah's life of, of, of um, circumstances back there in the first of Samuel chapter 1 and 2 the things that gave rise to that beautiful song of Hannah recorded in chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 Hannah as we've already stated lived in times of great apostasy chapter 1 of 1st of Samuel and verse 3 and this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto Yahweh of armies in Shiloh and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas the priests of Yahweh were there chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 we read now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial they knew not Yahweh and the priest's custom with the, with the people was that <coughs> when any man offered sacrifice the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and all that the flesh hook brought up the priest took for himself so did they in Shiloh under all the Israelites that came thither also before they burnt the fat the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed give flesh to roast for the priest for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw and so it's some indication of the great apostasy 
that existed in Israel at that time. We go over to chapter 7 and verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So we see that that nation was rife with idolatry. There were faithless priests desecrating the sacrifices of Yahweh. She was living in times of great apostasy. You know, those circumstances that existed in that household of Elkanah, the strife between Penina and Hannah, the way that Penina vexed Hannah's soul sore, was a little parable of the circumstances in that nation. You see, there was an apostate religion ruling the nation. And there was a, a little faithful minority typified by Hannah, vexed sore by the apostate priesthood and the, and the idolatry in that nation at that time, vexed sore for it. And here, uh, and as we see that, those, those household circumstances and the strife between Hannah and Penina, it's a little type of what was going on in that nation. The true ecclesia was being vexed sore by an apostate priesthood. The truth was fighting for an existence in the apostasy of those times. And Hannah, seeing this, gives herself to prayer unto Yahweh. And she prayed for a child. Not just any child, she prayed for a man-child in verse 11 of chapter 1 of the book of Samuel. And she, said, she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of armies, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I'll give him unto Yahweh all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. You see, what, what Hannah was praying for here I believe she stands as a type of the true ecclesia in the nation at that time. And what that ecclesia was praying for was a faithful leader who could bring about a reform in that nation that that nation might be preserved and that true worship might be established in that nation once more. And you see that was the drama of Hannah's life. The ecclesia was being afflicted, sore, by the apostasy in that nation. The truth was struggling for an existence and Hannah gave herself to prayer under Yahweh that she might give birth to a man-child that she could give him under Yahweh that he might grow up, that he might be a faithful and, and righteous ruler, a righteous priest that could bring about a reform in that nation and establish Yahweh's glory in that nation once more. You know, and that prayer was answered. And Hannah gave birth to Samuel. Samuel, a man who did grow up as a faithful priesthood. And in due course of time, Hophni, Phinehas and Eli were removed from their seats. And the humbler, more righteous Samuel was elevated to their position. Those people who had, who had, who had ruled that nation with oppression, who had fed themselves on the sacrifices of Yahweh, those who had been the rich in the nation at that time, were then sent away empty and the hungry were filled with good things. 
But of course those things that took place in Samuel's time were only a little foreshadowing of greater things that will be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hannah herself saw that Samuel was only a type of the Messiah. But in her song in verse 10 of chapter 2, Hannah says, The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed or his Messiah or his Christ as the word anointed means. And Hannah here is looking far beyond the days of Samuel. She's looking to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will be manifested in the earth with power. When he will break in pieces the, the adversaries of Yahweh. When he shall judge the ends of the earth. And he will be established as a great king in the city of Jerusalem. And so Hannah saw the little circumstances of her time, the struggle for the survival of the truth in those times of apostasy, the grace of Yahweh in giving Samuel to, to, to effect the reform in the nation at that time. She saw them as typical of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that Mary, as she contemplates the things that are to be accomplished through the son that she is about to bear, I believe she would have found a great sympathy of mind with Hannah as she looked around upon the apostasy in the nation at that time. There were the hated Romans marching through the land. There were the detested Herods upon the throne in that land. There was an apostate priesthood stifling the truth out of existence. And she saw the apostasy of that time. I believe she saw, as Hannah saw, through the as Hannah saw through Samuel, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, so she saw in the son that she was about to bear that Yahweh was about to give the victory to the things of his truth and so it would, it would, would smash the, the, the power of the adversary. And so we come to look a little more closely <coughs> at the song of Mary from verses 46 to uh, the 54 of Luke chapter 1. I believe that the Song of Mary can be divided quite clearly into four sections. Section number 1, verses 46 to 48 in which Mary <coughs> pronounces her great rejoicing of what Yahweh had done. Section number 2, verses 49 to 50, lay the basis of her joy, the things that Yahweh had done. Verses 51 to 53, lay, uh, pr pronounce the moral basis for the establishment of the kingdom of God. In verses 54 to 55, Mary points out that Christ's birth is both an act of divine grace to Israel and the fulfilment of the covenants of promise. And so the song very neatly divides into those four sections. You will find that those four sections run very parallel. 
with the divisions of Hannah's song in 1st of Samuel chapter 2. So first of all in verses 46 to 48 Mary says My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden for behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. So there <coughs> in those verses particularly verses 46 and 47 Mary expresses her great joy at that which Yahweh is about to perform. My soul magnifies the Lord. She desired to praise him. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. And so she's filled with a desire to praise Yahweh. She's filled with joy in contemplation of those things that Yahweh is to do through her son because she sees that through the son that she is to bear Yahweh is to provide the saviour of his ecclesia so he says in verse 48 he says for he hath regarded the lowest state or the humiliation of his handmaid he's regarded the humiliation of his handmaid that word handmaid there it means a bond, bond servant Mary saw herself as the bond slave of Yahweh. She recognised her humble state. She was conscious of her, her humiliation. She knew what she was in the sight of God. But she humbly gave herself unto Yahweh that, he might, that, that she might live her life in his service. She presented herself before Yahweh as his bond slave, one ready and willing to, to render his bidding, to perform his will. And he says, For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. All generations, he says, shall call me blessed. How could those generations that had gone before call her blessed? I believe her mind is going forward to the kingdom age when in the resurrection she will have her place in the glorified ecclesia she will be part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ and a very prominent part too because every member of that multitudinous body will look up to her as the one whom Yahweh chose to give birth to the redeemer of mankind and all people of all generations at that time will call her happy because of what has been accomplished <coughs> through her son but though our mind is going forth into the future to that future time when she will be called happy by all those who have like her benefited from the work of her glorious son now in verses, uh, verse 49 he says for he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name. So there in verses 48 and 49 and 50 48, 49 and 50 Mary shows the basis of her rejoicing. God had regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden 
all generations are going to call her happy. He says, For he that is mighty hath done great th- done to me great things, and holy is his name. And so she recognises that Yahweh is he that is mighty. It is his power that's going to accomplish these things, not hers. She is merely a humble bondslave. It is he that is mighty that is doing the great things and holy or righteous is his name. Holy is his name. She recognises the righteousness of all that Yahweh is to accomplish through her son. Now in verse 50 she says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. And so Yahweh's mercy has ever been extended to those that fear him. Throughout every generation of mankind, Yahweh's mercy has been extended to those that fear him. Those that have that profound knowledge and reverence for him, that respect for him, that fear of him, who recognise what he is and what they are themselves and they fear before him. That's the class to whom Yahweh's mercy is to be extended. That it's to be extended to them through the son that she is to bear. If he take away the Lord Jesus Christ and Yahweh's mercy cannot be extended. But with, with, through the Saviour Yahweh's mercy can be extended and he can raise those that fear him from every generation. He can raise them from the dead and glorify them in the kingdom of God. And so as Mary sees the mighty things that Yahweh is going to accomplish through that son, is it little wonder that her spirit rejoiced in God her Saviour. And she was moved to praise Yahweh with all her being. Now when we come to verse 51, 52 and 53 we find that Mary here I believe is transported into the future. She's speaking of future things as though they were actually accomplished upon the basis of Romans chapter 4 and verse 17 where we see that that, uh, (coughs) the Apostle Paul points out he says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. You see when God makes promises and says he's going to do things you can speak about them as if they're actually accomplished because they're so certain and sure. And Mary here, I believe, as she contemplates the things that Yahweh is to accomplish through her son, her mind is transported to the future as she sees the outworking of the mighty work that Yahweh has now begun. He says in verse 51, He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Yahweh hasn't done those things yet. Those things haven't yet been accomplished through the Son of God, but they're going to be. 
when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth and when he's after, after glorifying his ecclesia when he moves forth to intervene in the affairs of this world he will show strength with his arm or Yahweh will show strength with his arm through him he will scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts he will put down the mighty and that word mighty there refers to those in authority the princes, the rulers of this world he will put down the rulers of the world from their thrones and he will exalt them of low degree and so all those things relate to the future and Mary as she contemplates these things she's carried into the future as if those things are already accomplished and she's speaking and rejoicing over the things that will be accomplished through her son but through that son the day will come when Yahweh will show his strength to this world he will show the strength of his arm just as he did back in the days of the plagues of Egypt and there in the plagues of Egypt it's interesting that, that um, we find that there in relation to those plagues we have both the finger of God mentioned we have the hand of God mentioned and we have the arm of Yahweh mentioned now Exodus chapter 8 verse 19 describes the plague of lice as the work of the finger of God in Exodus 3 verse 20 Moses speaks of the plagues in general as the work of the hand of God and in Exodus 15 and verse 16 the song of Moses they celebrate the destruction of Pharaoh's army as the work of Yahweh's arm and so here Mary <coughs> rejoices that Yahweh will once again show strength with his arm and he delivers his people Israel once more from all nations of the earth as he exalts his saints he delivers them and exalts them in the earth and he shows the power of his arm he will scatter he says the proud in the imagination of their hearts the proud the word means to show oneself above others the self will of a headstrong and so here are, the, here are the proud you see when we're looking at the proud here it's the, it's the serpent manifested in the earth it's the serpent power that power that's had dominion over the woman down through the ages but you see he, um, Mary looks forward to the time when Yahweh is going to scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts the day will come when he will put down the rulers of this world from their thrones and he will exalt them of low degree you see here's the basis upon which Yahweh is going to establish the kingdom of God the proud are going to be kicked out they're going to be put down and those of low degree are going to be lifted up and exalted the Christadelphians are going to become the rulers of the world it's a miracle it's impossible outside of the power of Yahweh but Yahweh is going to effect that and accomplish that through the work of his son it's in verse 53 he says he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich hath he sent away empty 
He filled the hungry with good things. Who is he talking about when he speaks of the hungry? Is he talking of the starving millions in the world at this time? I don't think so. We go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Not verse 3. It's um, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are, uh, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's the ones he's going to fill with good things. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, a person hungers and thirsts when they lack something. But a person hungers and thirsts after righteousness when they're aware that they lack righteousness. You know, we got the example of the ecclesia at Laodicea. <coughs> so because they had all the material things they could desire, thought that they had need of nothing. They said, we're rich, we have need of nothing. They didn't know their needs. They weren't hungering and thirsting after righteousness because they thought they had everything that they wanted. Now that's a warning for us, brethren and sisters. We hold the knowledge of the truth. We've got very many material blessings as well. And it's very easy for those material things to steal away our mind. It's very easy for those things to blind us to the desperate needs that we have the needs of righteousness, the need of a covering for our sins, the need of gold tried in the fire, faith put to the test. Those are the things that Laodicea was exhorted to buy. Yes, they're exhorted to buy it. There is a price that has to be paid. Yahweh's gifts are free without price. But we have to pay a price. We cannot get gold tried in the fire. And as our faith is put to the test, it's put to the test through trial and tribulation. We cannot get a covering for our sins unless we identify ourselves with a crucified Saviour. These are the things, brethren and sisters, we should be hungering and thirsting after. And Mary saw that those who are hungering and thirsting after those things would be filled with good things because they will be clothed and covered and rewarded in the kingdom of God. Now in the 55th chapter of Isaiah (coughs) the prophet prophet Isaiah says in verse 1 he says Oh everyone that thirsteth come ye to the water and he that hath no money come ye buy and eat yea come buy wine and milk without money and without price you know, Isaiah is telling us that everyone that's thirsty, Yahweh will provide the means of refreshment free to everyone that is thirsty. But they've got to come. They've got to come to those waters and they've got to drink. You know, Yahweh's given us that water. He's given us the wine and the milk without money and without price within this, in the pages of this word. But you know, brothers and sisters, the only ones that get refreshment are the ones who thirst. The ones who thirst. The ones who are seeking that refreshment from Yahweh. 
the ones who are seeking that covering for their sins and so on and so forth they're the ones that get refreshment from Yahweh's word the others come to it and they get nothing and so Mary rejoices but through the work of her son he's going to fill the hungry with good things and the rich he's going to send away empty and as she looked around her in the nation at that time there was that apostate priesthood there were the scribes and the Pharisees thinking they were displaying their righteousness before men but they had no righteousness there were the rich feeding themselves of that nation fattening themselves of the poor of that nation at that time but Mary looked forward to the time when everything was going to be turned upside down when the mighty were going to be put down from their thrones the low, those of low degree were going to be exalted when the hungry were going to be fed with good things and the rich were going to be sent away empty this is a complete turning upside down of the political and religious constitution of the world as she saw it it's going to be completely turned upside down and she saw that they would all be accomplished through her son in verse 54 he says he has holpen his servant Israel the word servant there it's the word payas it means a child it can mean a servant but it can mean a child Israel was God's son they were his firstborn son back in Exodus chapter 4 and that word holpen it means to take hold of with the idea of helping so as if Yahweh stretched forth his hand to take hold of his son Israel that he might help him. You know, and in the birth of that son to Mary there was Yahweh's final attempt to redeem his son to restore his son to divine favour. We know the parable of the vineyard. He sent his servant, servant after servant, but in the end he said, I'll send my son, they'll reverence him. Because they rejected that son and they crucified him. But you see, Mary sees that that child she was to bear was to be Yahweh's attempt to extend his arm, to extend his grace to that nation, that he might help that nation, that he might help his son and redeem them from the state into which they had fallen. And she sees that that is done in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And of course we know the promises to Abraham concerning the nation of Israel <coughs> and their future greatness. But here was an endeavour on Yahweh's part to extend his grace, to save his son, and of course that will be accomplished when, he, that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes the kingdom of God upon the earth. And so she sees that son as being the one through whom those covenants of promise would be fulfilled. It was the extension of Yahweh's grace in fulfilment of his promises. Now I believe that these are the thoughts that filled Mary's heart as she rejoiced now before Elizabeth and she poured forth her heart in this beautiful song as she rejoices over the great things that Yahweh was to do by providing the seed of the woman 
who would be the redeemer of his ecclesia, who's going to turn the whole political and religious constitution of this world upside down when he throws out the mighty, when he puts down the proud, when he exalts those of low degree and fills the hungry with good things. Full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son. And from verses 57 down to verse 56 we read of the circumstances that surrounded the birth of John. John's birth was accompanied by three dramatic signs. There were three dramatic signs each one of which should have conveyed a message to the people of that nation. (coughs) The first sign comes in verses 57 and 58. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son and her neighbours and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. Elizabeth's full time came and she gives birth to a son and it's noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea that her that was barren her that was well stricken in years had given birth to a son and the neighbours and her relatives heard about it and they came together to rejoice with her you know it wasn't the first time that a barren woman had given birth to a son it happened in the case of Sarah who at 90 years of age gave birth to Isaac it happened in the case of Rebecca he wasn't quite so old but nevertheless uh, uh, getting old so that he, it became a matter of great concern whether she was to have a son. It's happened in cases like this but you know every time in the pages of God's word where such an event happened it was because Yahweh was accomplishing a special work. You know in the birth of Isaac Yahweh was accomplishing a special work And it was from that special work that the nation of Israel got its existence. And now it's noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea that her that was barren and well stricken in years has given birth to a son. And it was a sign to everybody in that nation that Yahweh was about to perform a mighty work. This was something out of the ordinary. (coughs) It had happened before, but on every occasion... It was because Yahweh was accomplishing a special work. And so that was dramatic sign number one. Dramatic sign number two comes in verses 59 to 63 where we read, And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There's none of thy kindred that he's called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he should have him named. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying, His name is John. And they marvelled all. You know, it was the normal custom for the day that a firstborn son would be named after his father. It was something that was just always done. 
the firstborn son was always named after his father. So that we read there in verse 59 that when the, the, the relatives and the neighbours and so forth came together on the eighth day, as the Greek tense uh, has it, they were calling him Zachariah after the name of his father. They were calling him Zachariah. And we can imagine on that occasion how, how all the neighbours and relatives came together and they would look upon that little child and they would say, well, look at little Zachariah. It was just taken for granted he was going to be called Zachariah. But Elizabeth says in verse 16, not so. He is going to be called John. And in verse 61 they said, well, what's the meaning of this? There isn't even anyone in your family that's called John. It's an unheard of thing that you should name this firstborn son. Give him a name that no member of your family's even got. And they took the matter to his father. They made signs to him how he was going to have him called. And Zechariah wrote, His name is John. His name was John because Yahweh had named him John. Zechariah back in verse 13, I think it is, verse 13. The angel Gabriel had told Zechariah, Thou shalt call his name John. You see, Yahweh had named him. And as as this is made known now to the gathered assembly, that it was actually Yahweh who had named that child, that had named him John. Again, that was a sign, a dramatic sign number two. You know, it wasn't an unheard of thing (coughs) that Yahweh should direct parents to name their children. It happened in the case of Isaac. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 9, Abraham and Sarah were told to name that child Isaac. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3, Isaiah was told to name his son Meher Shalal Hashbaz. In Hosea chapter 1, Hosea was told to name his various children. But you know, in every case, Yahweh was doing that for a special reason. Because Yahweh was accomplishing a special work with those children. And here was another lesson for the people of that country. Not only was this child born to a, a barren woman of old age, in her old age, But here was a child who was named before he was even conceived. He was named uh, in contrary to to, to the normal customs of the day. And his name was called John. That's dramatic sign number two. (coughs) And dramatic sign number three comes in verse 64. And his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God. That dumb man burst forth in speech. You know, the fact that the dumb were made to speak was always looked upon as a work of God. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6 speaks of the time when the dumb will speak. That's a work of God, work that God is to accomplish. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6 well, verse 5, Then shall the eyes, um, or, or reading from verse 4, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, 
Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And those things are all the work of God. They're the work of Yahweh. And now as this company is assembled here to witness the circumcision of that child, they witness the dumb man breaking forth in speech. And it's the work of God that's loosed his tongue and given him the power of speech once again. And each of those three dramatic signs pointed to the fact that Yahweh was about to perform a mighty work in the midst of Israel. And through that child that was born, Yahweh was to accomplish great things. (coughs) And the people got the message. Verse 65, And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And so you see, these things were noised abroad. People were filled with fear and reverence for the things that were being done in their midst at that time. The sayings were noised abroad and people were laying it up in their hearts. They were saying there's something out of the ordinary going to happen here. They laid it up in their hearts and they said, What manner of child shall this be? Now Brother Robert Roberts on page 30 of Nazareth Revisited as we quoted at the bottom of page 1 on the sheet. He wrote, In the process of time it became manifest what manner of child he was. The hand of the Lord was with him, as it states there in verse 69, which explained all. He was no chance evolution of natural force. He was no phenomenal bud on the Adamic tree. He was the workmanship of God for the specific work of heralding his son and preparing his way. Here was a child that Yahweh had provided And it says there in verse 66, And the hand of the Lord was with him. You see, Yahweh was overseeing the growth and the (coughs) development of that child. Yahweh was overseeing his education, preparing him for the mighty work that was to be given under him. It was Yahweh's work in the midst of that nation. And those three dramatic signs pointed to the fact that Yahweh was going to accomplish something out of the ordinary with that child that was just born. In verse um, 67 we read, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And he burst forth into a beautiful psalm of praise, which takes us down to verse 79. On the back of the sheet that was given you, we must made a few little introductory comments to the song of Zacharias. We stated there that this song expresses the main principles of Yahweh's redemptive work in Christ and the work of John in calling people to repentance. It is in the form of a beautiful psalm based upon the meanings of the names of Jesus, John, 
Zechariah and Elizabeth. Notice verses 71 to 73. Verses 71 to 73 read, That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. That we should be saved, he says in verse 71. And the Lord Mary was to bear a son whose name was to be called Jesus, the salvation of Yahweh. And it was through that son that Israel was to be saved. And so in verse 71 he draws upon the meaning of the name Jesus. In verse 72 we we read, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers for the extension of grace. And the name John means the grace of Yahweh. So we've got the name of Jesus in verse 71. We've got the name of John (coughs) in verse 72 where he speaks of the performing of the mercy or the extending of the grace promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Zechariah's name means Yahweh hath remembered or the remembrance of Yahweh. <coughs> and here you see the play upon the meaning of Zechariah's name to remember his holy covenant verse 73 the oath which he swore to our father Abraham and Elizabeth's name, Elizabeth's name means the oath of my God and you know the whole of this beautiful psalm is woven around those statements based upon the meanings of the names of Jesus, John, Zechariah and Elizabeth and through those, years, those months of silence, as Zechariah, smitten dumb and deaf, was committed to silence, we can see how Zechariah's mind had, had turned these things over, over and over. He'd meditated upon these things. And now when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he bursts forth in this beautiful psalm, we can see the way that his mind had been exercised upon the names of those characters involved in that mighty work that Yahweh was accomplishing at that time. (coughs) I believe that Zechariah's song can be divided into five sections. Verses 68 to 49 Zechariah praises Yahweh for the mighty things that he has done or about to do. Verses 70 to 72 points out that Yahweh fulfills his promises. The things that were to be accomplished were the fulfilment of Yahweh's promises. Verses 73 to 75 he speaks of Yahweh's deliverance for Israel that Israel might be able to serve him without fear. In verses 76 to 77, Zechariah turns from the work to be accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ and he turns to his own son and he speaks of John's work and mission foretold. He foretells John's work and mission. And finally in verses 78 and 79, (coughs) he points out that that, uh, that, that he's an extension of Yahweh's grace to give us light and to direct our feet into the way of peace. And so the song, I believe, divides into those five sections. 
In in the first section, verses 68 and 69, we read, (coughs) Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now we go back to the book of Genesis. <coughs> Genesis chapter 21 <coughs> and verse 1. <coughs> and Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said. And Yahweh did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. You know, and as Zechariah contemplates the birth of his son to himself and his wife when well stricken in years, his mind goes back to Sarah and Abraham. And just as Yahweh visited Sarah and produced Isaac from which the Jewish nation came, Now he points out that Yahweh had visited his people. He'd visited his people. (coughs) He'd visited his people through through John, or was going to visit them through John and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he'd visited Elizabeth and he'd visited Mary and he'd set this work in motion. You know, we we have this phrase, Yahweh has visited his people, occurs many times through the scriptures. It occurs in the book of Ruth, for example. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. <coughs> then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab how that Yahweh had visited his people giving them bread. See, so see, here blessings have been poured out upon the nation of Israel. The famine had been broken. Yahweh had given his people bread. It was spoken of here as Yahweh visiting his people and pouring out a blessing upon them. Likewise, we find it used in the book of Exodus when Yahweh redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Exodus 3.19 and 4.31 speak of Yahweh visiting his people in that nation. And he visited them to deliver them out of Egypt. And I believe all these things would be being put together in Zechariah's mind as he says, Yah, the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And that's the work that he was to accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ. He was to redeem his people. And he had raised up for us an horn of salvation. Why should he speak of a horn of salvation? Now in the temple there was an altar and upon each corner of that altar was a horn. There were four horns upon the altar (coughs) and the blood of the sin offering was placed upon those horns and we read in cases such as Joab and other times when people seeking forgiveness and mercy they would take hold of the horns of that altar because a horn is a symbol of power. And those horns were a symbol 
of Yahweh's power of salvation manifested in that altar. But you see, here in the Lord Jesus Christ was the true altar, the anti-typical altar, one in whom would be invested the power of salvation for us. And Zacharias points out, he raised him up in the house of his servant David. And so Zechariah rejoices and praises Yahweh over the mighty things that he is to accomplish through those two children. One had just been born and the other would soon be born. I believe, brethren and sisters, that as we look at the minds of these two people, Mary and Zechariah, as exhibited in these songs, it shows us what a profound understanding of Scripture they had. What a profound understanding they had of Yahweh's workings and Yahweh's dealings with man and the principles of redemption in Christ. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that we might be exercised to look deeper into the pages of Yahweh's Word, that we might be caused to hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we might realise our needs our desperate needs in this world where we seem to have everything. We have got desperate needs. We should be hungry. We should be hungering and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. <coughs> and may it be that we might seek deeply into the pages of Yahweh's work, that we might be among that community that Mary saw will be exalted in the day to come and will be filled with good things.